what verse in the Old Testament do you think is the most popularly cited verse in the New Testament? (laughs) Now, we have done this sort of thing in a lot of sermons where we'll look at a text and see how it's represented throughout Scripture. And so we've seen some pretty iconic stories, passages, reappropriated later on. But since we can measure this sort of thing, there's got to be a text that appears, and I'm talking verbatim citation, that appears more often than any other text from the Old Testament. Now you can think of these famous stories in the Hebrew Bible, things like creation, Genesis 1, the fall, Genesis 3, the exodus, Exodus 12. But none of those... (laughs) are cited more than any other passage in Scripture. Using deductive reasoning, I'm sure you can guess the answer to this question. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most popularly cited Old Testament text in the New. Now, because of this, I had trouble selecting what passages would be read before the sermon, The first passage in 2 Samuel 7 doesn't feature verbatim parallels, but I think sets the stage for the psalm in Psalm 110. The second passage in Hebrews 1 is, of course, one of many direct parallels in the New Testament, and we'll look at a few others in a few minutes. I think it's essential, though, to look not only at later parallels, So if we're looking at Psalm 110 to look at New Testament citations, but also to look at earlier ones. I think key to understanding Psalm 110, and really any passage of Scripture, is to read it in light of what comes before it and what comes after it. This sermon, then, is meant to cap off our mini-series in the book of Psalms, which stands in between our series in Exodus, and the season of Advent to begin next week. But my hope is that it orients you to the season of Advent, a season in which we anticipate expectantly the arrival of God into our lives. And of course, in the form of Jesus Christ at Christmas. So we're going to read Psalm 110 in just a minute. We're going to study it in its original context and look at some biblical parallels before applying it to our lives today. So that is the plan, and this will be our final psalm of the year. But before we go any further, friends, let us pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your word. You've not left us alone. You've given us your word and your spirit to guide us through your word. But Lord, your word is always meant to lead us to you, Jesus, the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Lord, I pray that this morning and the many mornings to come this season would present you to us 
powerfully, palpably, transformatively. May we encounter you, Jesus, when we open these scriptures, no matter how old they are. And don't let us leave this place unchanged. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 110, if you haven't turned there yet. Psalm 110, the most famous Old Testament passage, in a way, in our New Testament. It's a psalm of David, authored by David, associated with David. He's written a number of psalms, and usually there are superscripts, little labels that tell you if it's a Davidic psalm or not. And in Hebrew, it's a midsmor, which is a certain kind of psalm. It's not a maskil, which is a kind of wisdom teaching psalm, like we saw last time I preached in Psalm 78. It's not a lament psalm where the psalmist pours out his grief to the Lord, uh, nor is it strictly a praise psalm, just praising God. You see a lot of those in the hundreds, Psalm 140 to 150 and so forth. This seems to be a royal psalm, a psalm that is written about and written to the king, whoever was assuming that office at the time. But you could argue, as early Christians did, that it is also a messianic psalm, that it's not only referring to the king of Israel at the time, and maybe the next one and the next one, but to some greater king that's not simply an earthly descendant of David. So Psalm 110, a psalm of David, let us read it. We're going to read it in the ESV. That's the version of the Bibles you have before you. We'll read all seven verses. And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You may be seated. Why, why, why would this be the most popular text in the New Testament? One particularly thorny problem, interpretive problem, is to identify who is the Lord and who is my Lord. And then to figure out how David fits into the mix, okay? David is writing this psalm, but in the psalm we see mentioned the Lord and my Lord. So we have to figure out who those labels apply to. <laughs> now, I study 
each psalm in, in the Hebrew, and I, I read commentaries, and after doing all of that and looking at the precise words that are used for the Lord and my Lord, and how those words are used elsewhere, it seems to me that the Lord, at the beginning of verse 1, refers to Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which Orthodox Jews won't even pronounce. And so they substitute Adonai for this word, but it really is the word Yahweh. Friends, this can only refer to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God that we worship. This is not just any Lord, a master, a king, a ruler. This is God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. The next phrase, though, my Lord is the word Adonai. And this is the word that you see used of earthly rulers all throughout the Old Testament. You see it used of masters in the slave-master relationship. You see it used of government officials, of kings. If you were to enter the throne room of an earthly king, you would say, at your service, my Lord. It is that word. So Yahweh says to my Lord the king, and what's hard is that David is writing this. So at the time, maybe David was king. We don't actually know. He could have been writing this before when he's being pursued by Saul. But I think he is writing this to be read by his descendants who would sit on the throne for generations and generations to come. He's not just writing about himself. But he's writing about, and to, the many kings who were promised to sit on the throne. And we read such promises in 2 Samuel 7. This, then, is a psalm meant to encourage the faint hearts of the descendants of David who would sit on his throne, who were faced by circumstances that would have pushed any of us to despair. But, as we'll see, in the way that early Christians read this psalm, I think it is also pointing towards another descendant of David, another king that was not just an earthly son. So let's keep that in mind. A helpful way to translate this would then be, Yahweh says to my Lord the King, sit on my right side until I make your enemies a a stool for your feet. So Yahweh is commanding the king, whoever that is at the time, to make the decision to align his rule with the will of Yahweh. Don't rule alone. Don't be a secular king. Don't try to divide the religious affairs Devotion to me with the political affairs, affairs of the state. Rule with me, and I will make your enemies your footstool. So we get a command. And then you'll see in verse 2, there are some results forecasted if the king decides to rule with Yahweh. It says, if, if you do this, Yahweh will send forth your staff, your mighty staff or scepter from Zion, the capital of Israel. The staff is a symbol of military and political power. 
of victory. And this image of a staff coming forth from the political capital of Israel means that you will be victorious. You will succeed as king. And then we get this direct exhortation, rule, and I would say rule boldly in the midst of your enemies. David, I don't think, is simply talking to himself, giving himself a pep talk in front of the mirror before going out to battle, but he's talking to his descendants who, of course, would be discouraged and would despair. And you can read about such descendants in the books of First and Second Kings. He's saying, rule with Yahweh, rule boldly, and he will fight your enemies for you and with you. If you do this, verse 3, your people, the people of Israel, will offer themselves freely. There's really no verb in Hebrew here. It's your people will become a, an offering, the same word for giving an offering at the temple. Your people collectively will offer themselves as one would offer a sacrifice to a priest. And I think you could say that they're offering themselves not only to the king, but also to God. If you choose to rule with me, I will vanquish your enemies and your people will submit themselves to you and me faithfully. And he says this would take place on the day of your power and the people would present themselves in holy garments. We get language from the priesthood, from the temple coming in here. Not only are the people bowing before an authoritative king, but they are purified. They're consecrated. They're holy, if the king rules with Yahweh. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This imagery connotes the morning after darkness, a dark and violent battle that the king and his military would engage in, And with the rise of the sun would come hope and new life. And here we see youth. Continuing to encourage his descendants and likely to encourage himself, David says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn via oath, and he will not change his mind. Colon. You are a priest forever. Not only a king, but a priest. In the order of Melchizedek. Now the word for king in Hebrew is melech, and zedek means righteousness. And if you read in Genesis 14, you'll see Abraham encountering this figure, Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, which would become Jerusalem. And they have a kind of priestly exchange. Melchizedek is referred to in Hebrews as a great parallel to the person of Jesus because he holds within himself the office of king and priest at the same time. David is saying to his descendants, you are not only a king, you are a priest. Not only are you responsible for the physical welfare of the people, for ruling them rightly. You are responsible for presenting them as holy and blameless, devoted to God. 
Those two offices should have never been separated, is what David says. I think his descendants hearing this from their ancestor, their famous ancestor, David, would have been encouraged to continue boldly in any circumstance. I'm not only a king ruling with God, but I am his priest. Verse 5 is a bit difficult because if we are to take the image seriously of the, the king sitting next to Yahweh, the king is sitting at his right hand, right? That would mean that Yahweh is on the left. But here the ESV says, the Lord is at your right hand. Now, that wouldn't make sense if the Lord is referring to Yahweh because the Lord is on the king's left hand. But this word in verse 5 is not Yahweh, it's Adonai. And so I respectfully disagree with the ESV's translation. I think this is saying, to Yahweh, the king is at your right hand. Saying this in the hearing of the earthly king at the time. And if he is at your right hand, Lord, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. Literally, he will break to pieces heads upon the earth, either literal heads or the heads of nations. It's hard to know. I think you could go either way. Grammatically, I, I truly think it's referring to the king seated at the right hand of Yahweh. But the fact that there is confusion, that we don't know who is acting, I think is intentional. If the king decides to align himself with Yahweh, we could ask at any given moment, who is acting, the king or God? And the answer would be yes. <laughs> if the king decides to rule with God, God will make his enemies into both his and the king's footstool. He will rule the people boldly and successfully. And lastly, in verse 7, he, which I think is the earthly king, descendant of David, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That's pretty obvious what that means, right? I don't have to speak about that. That was a joke. Um, this is probably the most confusing verse in the psalm. What are we to make of this? Why would the psalmist include this detail about drinking from a brook? and lifting up the head. Now, there are two stories in the Old Testament that refer to bending down and drinking from a brook and the idea of lifting up a head. The first story is the story of Gideon. Now, Gideon in Judges 7 and 8 was threshing wheat. He's a humble farmer. And the Midianites were harassing Israel. And God calls Gideon to leave the threshing floor, to gather the people, and to fight the Midianites. But there were too many men. And I mean too many Israelites. 22,000. And God said, you are going to claim credit for yourselves. We need to whittle this group down. So he whittles them down to about 11,000. And he says, it's still too much. 
And so he whittles them from 11,000 to 300. But the way that he does that is he asks the men to drink from a brook. And based on how they drank, they were divided into 300 and the rest went home. God defeated the Midianites through Gideon through the 300. The 300 who drank from the brook a certain way. And it literally says in Judges 8, the Midianites lifted their heads no more. To lift the head is to be exalted, to succeed. But there's also notes of lifting the head off of the neck. I think here it refers to exaltation. Gideon was exalted. He lifted his head. The Midianites, their enemies, did not. Briefly, the only other story involving a brook happens in 1 Kings 17, the story of Elijah. Uh, The land of Israel received no rain for three years, and Ahab, the king, is trying to find Elijah and to kill this pestering prophet. And God says, go to the brook. I will hydrate you there, drink from it, and the ravens will bring you food. So the palace of Ahab is starving, they're thirsty, and God is providing for Elijah from a brook. And then just a chapter later, Elijah defeats all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah's head is lifted up, and their heads are dashed to the earth. I think the idea, friends, is that just as God came alongside the humble Gideon and the humble Elijah, empowering them to defeat their enemies, providing for them through a brook, and then exalting them. So will God do to any descendant of David who sits the throne, no matter how difficult their circumstances are. This psalm is meant to encourage the faint hearts of David's descendants. It extends the promises of 2 Samuel 7, ensuring them that if they choose to rule with God, Yahweh will never leave them. And that even though they may get low, 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 in the end, they will be exalted. And what I want to do in our remaining time is just quickly skate through some of the references to this psalm in the New Testament. Because there are so many, we're not going to read them in full. We can do that more in the sermon review. This psalm, at least verse 1, is cited verbatim in three of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Acts chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians 15, and in Hebrews chapter 1. Six different places. In the Gospels, the psalm is cited mainly to show that my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, is a reference to, or could be a reference to, the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees at the time, and he says that it is absurd for you to claim that the Messiah will just be a mere earthly descendant of David. Why would David refer to just some son of his as my Lord? This term of reverence, honor. 
Jesus says it must refer to something more, to someone greater. And of course, that would be Jesus. Peter, in Acts 2, in his sermon to the Jews gathered for Pentecost and gathered in Jerusalem, he references the psalm in a similar way. But he focuses on the exaltation of Christ after the crucifixion, so after being humiliated by his enemies on the cross, the lifting up of Christ, the ascension of Christ, And he says, David didn't ascend to the heavens. So clearly, my Lord here is a reference to Jesus Christ. And that despite his humiliating death, he has been exalted and seated next to Yahweh in the heavens. What this means, according to Peter, is that right now, Jesus rules In the same way described in Psalm 110, he rules for us, with us, and he will vanquish all of our enemies, saving us and being exalted in the end. The Apostle Paul extends this a bit further when he identifies who some of those enemies are for us as Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that the final enemy that Christ will defeat is death itself. So we're going beyond just earthly kings and rulers, just literal heads that could be dashed, just armies that could be defeated. We're talking now about sin, evil, death, in addition to those things. The idea is that Christ right now is waging war at the right hand of God against all sin, evil, and death in our behalf. And that when he returns, those who are in Christ will be raised with him, our heads will be lifted up, death will be defeated, the people of God saved, and Paul says the reins will be returned to God the Father. The final instance that I'll mention is in Hebrews chapter 1. And Hebrews is really a a sermon. It's not a letter. It's a a beautiful sermon. And chapter 1 talks about the supremacy of Christ. And apparently the audience needed to be convinced of the supremacy of Christ because they thought angels, heroes in the Old Testament, and other figures were almost equivalent to Christ in authority and power. But the author of Hebrews goes through these quotations, to which of the angels did God say this, this, and this? And lastly, in our verse 13, Hebrews 1, to which of the angels did God say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies into a stool? It's clear that my Lord Even if it was read initially to mean whoever's sitting on the throne at the time, it's clear that that meant something more. (laughs) That it was pointing to a king of earthly descent and of divine descent who would not only vanquish all of our earthly enemies, but all of our spiritual ones too. Amen.
As Christians approaching this psalm with fresh eyes, I want us to read Yahweh as God the Father and my Lord as Jesus Christ. This is the way the early Christians read it. and I think it's the way we need to read it, friends. I want you then to think of the enemies mentioned in the psalm, these nations, these warring kings, as the forces of sin, evil, and death which separate you from God and which torment your soul every single day. Think of these as hate, greed, lust, arrogance, suspicion, violence, all of it. And think about Jesus right now at the right hand of God, currently fighting those enemies and gradually making them into a stool for his feet and for yours. Jesus is currently winning safety, salvation, wholeness, peace for all of us through these efforts that seem never-ending. And so like the Davidic descendants who sat on the throne and were encouraged by this psalm, we too as Christians can be deeply encouraged and assured by it. This psalm doesn't just identify the Messiah as a descendant of David, but it inspires the hearts of God's people anywhere and everywhere by showing them that Jesus Christ, God's divine mediator and king, is fighting our enemies to win for us salvation forever. I can think of no better way to set up the season of Advent. This is a season in which we await the arrival of the King of Kings, who will invade our busy, anxious, dark lives and light them up with the life and love of Jesus. May this psalm, Psalm 110, obviously now the most famous psalm in the New Testament, may it inspire us as it inspired David's descendants and the earliest Christians to trust in God's might amidst the many trials we face, to trust, friends, in Christ our King. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so grateful for you, our King. A King who was promised to us, a King who is now reigning for us, reigning with us. Help us, Lord, to see you fighting our enemies, those dark forces that Terrify us, Lord, that enslave us, suffocate us, help us to see you making those enemies into a stool for your feet. Give us boldness, assurance, and peace this season as we look not to ourselves, but to you, our King on the throne. We love you. And pray that you would be glorified by our small efforts at worship. Transform us, please, in Christ's name. Amen.